Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, just like these wacky X-Men in all these stories, except for Curse. And and maybe Gorgon. Yeah, Gorgon seems pretty dead too. You know, this was a really interesting run of X-Men Unlimited, which means we are here to talk about X-Men Unlimited number 44 to 58, which sure sounds like a lot, but it's not quite as much as you'd think considering the infinite scrolling format isn't that infinite. It's a lot of information per issue, but let's kick it off with the creative teams. We have Steve Orlando, Emilio Lasso, Rochelle Rosenberg, and VCs Joe Sabino on the X-Men Green Arc that ran from X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comic 44 to 49. We have Steve Fox, Alan Robinson, Carlos Lopez, and VCs Joe Sabino on the Hellfire Club Confessionals One-Shot Shorts and X-Men Unlimited Infinite Comic 50 to 55, representing sort of like a, man, not like the story was a downgrade, but like the format was kind of a super hardcore downgrade for the secret X-Men. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh my god, that was just dollar binning them. Ugh. And then the triumphant return of team favorite ex scribe Jason Lowe on X Men Unlimited 56 through 58, alongside colorist Antonio Fabella and VCs Joe Sabino. So this is such a super loaded sort of crew. And I want to kind of start with how has everybody been enjoying the X Men Unlimited comics? They're sort of more grounded in like this is where they probably go in canon than most of the others. Yeah, I, th- I really think X-Men Unlimited has been a pretty fantastic opportunity to give creators we don't normally see access to some interesting story potential. I kind of have to take that back with these three because it's some big names. Jason Lowe being like somebody who has been big on in the Infinity Comics and who we love very much, but like Steve Orlando and Steve Fox are becoming big names at Marvel. So it was kind of the biggest shift for me was seeing their names on this series rather than some of the other names that we've seen um, who've been a little bit lesser known and kind of gotten to play in the sandbox and gotten to work with some characters that just for reasons of commercial viability are probably not going to be seeing solo adventures or big team books but they might be fan favorites there might be people we're interested in seeing what they're up to in Krakoa we said over and over again that we wanted slice of life books and also that because there's so many characters that we love and we know this is this big expansive new world that they're all living in we kind of really want to know what everybody is up to and we can't just take like oh they're in mutant paradise as the answer like we really got to see it and unlimited has been really doing a lot of the heavy lifting for some characters that wouldn't get that attention otherwise very much so and it's something that i'm in agreement with you tk i think the infinity comics are marvel's way of saying we know that there are fans of these you know bc and d 
sisters, but we really don't have a reason to put them in a title. So let's put them in Infinity Comics where they're in bite-sized content that regardless of anything, it's not a gamble on will this title sell if this character's in or not, because it's already a subscription service. If somebody's already going to buy the subscription, they're going to buy the subscription. The other thing I should really appreciate about the X-Men Infinity comic is that it's not a singular story that we're following continuously. It breaks it up into smaller arcs, which I find fun and makes it feel like regular comics in the sense of, you know, you'll have three issues following this arc and then you'll have the fourth issue be a solo one shot and then five and six are its own story. And I like that Marvel, the Marvel Infinity comics, specifically more so the X-Men Infinity comics, seems to be following that format. And I always look to the X-Men Unlimited books to, I think, tell stories that wouldn't be told in the normal titles. And with that in mind, I don't know that I'm always saying characters that wouldn't get big play. I think sometimes I am saying just less common stories, a little bit more along the lines of that incredible Banshee story we got earlier this year. Or, you know, I don't think Madrox is like some unfuckable loser at the bar. I don't think like he is some, oh, the dregs kind of character. He is, you know, a strong B plus tier. He could anchor his own book with the right creative team. And I think we have seen, you know, varying success for the character over the years. But I find one of the things that makes X-Men Unlimited a really interesting title is that it's not super concerned with telling a specific perspective. And by that, I mean, I don't know who some of these arcs are for, but I think something that the X-Men has always had is sort of these like, oh, right, that's running in the background. I don't think X-Men Green is like the worst thing conceptually. Like, I'm not coming for any creator of it. It just hasn't been my story. It hasn't been something that really worked for me, but it's been really interesting seeing that group and then seeing the Hellfire sort of new secret X-Men group and then seeing the X-Friends and the Star Jammers. I like that we're at least facilitating a lot of characters at a time. If that's what we're doing, okay, cool. I'm getting like, I'm getting like eight people per issue. Okay, I'll take it. Give me, give me, give me. I definitely agree with that. I will say, I think, you know, the first unlimited arc that we got was Wolverine. So yeah, there there is an argument to be made for the fact that this is not the dregs. Madrox is where we start to get into a tier of character that I I would argue today you could Madrox really would have a bit of trouble anchoring a book, but he is a fan favorite and he's somebody that a lot of people, especially our age, who you know grew up with a bunch of Madrox, he's somebody that we do kind of want to know what he's up to. But I don't think you could bring back X Factor or X Factor Investigations with Madrox and have it have the success that it once did. So I do think on the whole you get a lot of characters characters here. Not all, but you get a lot of characters who are just probably not going to get a lot of big stories. Wolverine is an exception, but you know, it is that pairing of a lot of characters and creators who are, you know, generally not getting the big name books, but then, you know, randomly stuff thrown in that is, you know, a a flashy name or a flashy character to kind of remind people that this is a cool thing. But yeah, on the whole, the value is that you can throw in a bunch of 
of lesser known, smaller names, not going to have like huge plot line storytelling characters. And they all seem to kind of mesh and interact really well together. And I think you see that most especially with the rescue X-Men green team. But then I think, you know, that was something that we were all really looking at when we were noticing the people that were up for vote for the X-Men vote this year. And I think all of them getting a story in Unlimited, while yeah, not the same high profile as a one shot, I feel like, you know, maybe it's not even like drastically more content, but just the serial nature and the timing of it, it maybe to me felt like a little more content. It felt like a realer story than the one and done of the Secret X-Men book that came out last year for the previous Hellfire Gala vote team. I have to concur with you once again, TK. It's reg- especially regarding the Hellfire Gala special. It felt a little bit nicer because I was actually appreciative that we got another Hellfire Gala story. This year's Hellfire Gala, I was a little disappointed in the content that we got coming out of it, especially with the big fanfare the first one got us. And to see it really kind of self-contained in one singular issue really kind of made me a little bit bummed. But seeing that it did get a special in Marvel Unlimited, it did feel a little bit better, especially regarding that setting. I appreciated those players, but I, I kind of felt a little jad when they were like, huh, Secret Esper, where have I heard that before? And then it's like, oh, we're we just going to make this joke every time where the people who don't vote get a singular story. It might get a little running that bit into the ground just a little bit. But I do appreciate that Marvel Unlimited, because of the way the content works and the way that the format works, they can be a little more experimental with the characters they choose and the stories they're trying to tell because uh, the way that Infinity Comics work, you actually have a unique opportunity to kind of format your comic in a way that you can't with traditional comics. And I really like that. I like seeing artists get to kind of play with different variations of how to tell a story in the comic format through this scrolling medium that's not necessarily confined to the way that you would in a regular comic where you pick up and you have to panel it a certain way. You have to do, you know, all these different things in a certain way that you don't actually have to when it comes to Marvel Unlimited. But I do think I would appreciate maybe some more stories or more ideas around these characters that are B or C listers, it just kind of feels like, all right, well, we're done with them and we're not going to see them again until they eventually maybe get another Marvel Unlimited story. Because it feels like we have two concurrent stories that are very big, which is the X-Men Green storyline and uh, almost shockingly the Jamie Magic Strong Guy storylines where they just seem to kind of keep rehashing the same arguments over and over again. It would be nice if maybe we got even more of a variety that didn't feel so like okay you got it now we're done with these characters and in the box they go and i love that we're seeing such an influx of i would say newer talent at marvel though steve orlando definitely and let me say steve orlando i give you the biggest credit for the way he effortlessly it would seem kept bringing this back to curse of the man thing a book we covered here on this show (laughs) i was like way to be like no i did this already not new to this already doing Orcus get out of my way I really loved how hard he was like have you seen my book and I that's how you make it happen man uh, the reference to Harrower it was all very interesting I really was pleased right off the bat with seeing you know a, char- a writer that they have on a major book like Marauders in the pages of Unlimited but then seeing Steve Fox that's really cool seeing Jason Lowe again really cool two guys who probably don't 
regularly at this moment anchor a ton of major X titles, but could any moment? And I think that is really great to see on Unlimited. They're at least putting great creators forward, like Antonio Fabella, who is like merciless color god on every book he has been on. How do you guys feel about the dexterity and mirth of writers, artists, and other creators on this title? I very much appreciate that we get such a uh, treasure trove and depth of writers and creative teams and artists and all these people that they come together to create these Infinity comics because I feel like, like I talked about before, there really isn't a lot of risk to these. So I like that they get to put all these different teams together. They can have so many different creative teams come together to form these issues that go across five unlimited issues because I imagine the amount of production time is very different comparative to a standard comic. And since it's digital only, they don't have to deal with shipping issues. There isn't any supply chain problems. They don't have any to worry about specifically delays of if somebody's falling behind or whatever in the, the machine, the cog in the machine, they don't have to worry about it affecting anybody else's schedule. And so I think that because there's a lot more levity and there isn't as much at stake, we get to see a lot more push for diversity in terms of these creative teams and who gets to write these stories because of the way the medium of the Infinity comic works. So I love that we get so many different people get, getting to work on these. I think it's really great. I think it's interesting that we have a creator like Jason Lowe, who is writer, penciler, and inker for his particular story. And then, you know, we have a separate colorist who, yeah, is really doing gorgeous work in this book. But how interesting that we get a a story about, you know, what we could debate are two big or not big characters in X-Men canon. That he's also famous for writing a kind of one-off webcomic about Madrox that came to prominence online and help him be known as a guy who writes good Jamie Madrox. So why not have him write some Madrox in the Infinity comics? I just think it's really neat. It's a fun opportunity for Marvel to show that like there is not such a rigidity to how they produce graphic sequential narratives that they can't play around with certain formats and certain ways and give us a story that is funny and unique and the voice is really consistent both in the writing and the art and you know the stories by Steve Fox and Steve Orlando that they have a more standard team doesn't take anything away from them I think the writing in both cases really gives a sense of love of deep X-Men lore and character situations and an understanding of the fact that the X-Men find themselves in stories that other superhero teams do not and you really have to kind of lean into that in order to create something that feels authentically X-Men even if it's in a format that we aren't necessarily used to seeing them in and I think that is in both cases paired with very stylized art I especially point to Steve Fox when I say that might not be a style that I always connect with all the time but I really appreciate that there is a sense of style to the Hellfire Gala story that makes it unique and does while I may while it may not be like my top choice I feel like it does speak to the event itself and the fact that people are kind of all dolled up and the faces that you see really look like they're supposed to be made up and have big bright red lips and big silly costumes and for me it all is really consistent and there's so much in these issues that I think make these arcs individual and yet really do have a powerful consistency across them and to take a look at the first arc the X-Men Green follow-up story here this did a bunch of things I wanted 
like mm-hmm. got rid of curse mm-hmm. and i don't know if curse could be brought back as wish through you know egg fuckery i'd be about it i also thought there were really cute moments kitty pride explaining that a red and white symbol means hope that's actually a thing that's why the umbrellas outside of first aid are no matter what red and white in disney parks no matter the theming because people recognize red and white as ambulatory so it's like an actual thing and that's a really cool touch wow cool and i thought that made it feel like oh look here are the real x-men for a second and i just think that like nature girl the whole time way too powerful i don't get it i but like i get that this is a thing people like i'm not coming for it it's just not for me it's not like poorly written i even love how like nah kind of maniacal super villainous she gets before curse is like oh my god i did this to you i'm a bad kid i'm a bad curse and um now you're a bad curse and it's amazing it's i don't know but nature girl too powerful don't i mean i guess what we're going to have to find out is would she ever have been that powerful if not for curse we are coming off of judgment day and a big reversal of an insane story the one thing that i'm really conflicted on is i did not like this trajectory for nature girl although i really liked the idea that she would be deeply invested in the environment and you know i mean i do think steve orlando is a fantastic person to close out this arc because of man things specifically because there is something being said about what is going on with the planet itself and it might be an even bigger story and frankly it could have tied into judgment day setting that aside there's really something to be said for like a cautionary tale about the environment and i love nature girl participating in that for sure murdering a man working at a convenience store in cold blood was a rough sell for me and going forward from that was a real rough sell and i do sort of appreciate the way that they really fucked with the readers a lot because our team many of us were trying to justify like why they could kind of understand what nature girl was doing because what is happening to our environment really is horrible and if there's somebody who can feel that on a supernatural level they might get to this point and lo and behold no they wouldn't it was actually this little goblin girl that can do evil wishes that was making her like this so i kind of do appreciate that they were like yeah we got you all to sort of say maybe nature girl made some points but she didn't make any points it was cursed being a little bastard child i'm glad that we now don't have to deal with a nature girl who intentionally murdered a dude in cold blood but the it was all a dream of it all uh is a smidge of a bummer for me, part of the problem with X-Men Green is that we started at 99, and then we brought it to 100, but it just stayed there. I feel like there weren't really a lot of levels in terms of how do you play with this story in terms of pacing and action. It felt like we went to, Lynn went too far too quickly, and we had nowhere to build from that. I don't know if I fully think the stakes of X-Men Green really match kind of the vibe that they're going for. I think 
think maybe you can even still even do the idea of Lynn turning evil even with or without curse but I think I like the idea of Lynn trying to start humanitarianly like trying to do rallies trying to go the proper way to do things and getting frustrated by not seeing a lack uh, by seeing a lack of progress by seeing that her efforts are trying to do things the way that she was taught you know through the nice option aren't working so she tries to do more and more drastic methods and I think that descent into caring so much for the environment into becoming evil and becoming this sort of eco-terrorist I think it works in that sense because you have a lot that you can build up to it but when you start at her killing somebody in cold murder and then not really taking it to the next extreme which I don't really know what the next extreme is though they kind of try to hint at it in the last issue of talking about her essentially just destroying literally cities and everybody and at that point you have to say okay how is she still not captured at this point like I, I it feels like a huge old comedy of errors by the uh, quiet council that Lynn has not been brought in and uh, not to say that because of curse certain things tend to just go their way because in a fun in a super ironic even funny way she's a wish fulfillment character she literally has wish fulfillment powers it just feels like huh a little too much is going right for this all to feel real if that makes sense I also find myself very frustrated with the nature of the treatment of X-Men Green because we've seen the characters used in such perhaps diverse ways we find ourselves where I don't know that there is a clear through line that we can track for these characters from their beginning to now and for me when it's across 21 years and we're like oh well yeah it's been a long time like you can have a million different interpretations of that character sure no problem but when it's across such a short period of time I find myself particularly overwhelmed and it ultimately leaves the book in a pretty uncomfortable place for me who are these characters and which version of them am I getting here? I think that there have been some emotional through lines for Curse throughout the title so far, but this was perhaps a shocking amount of humanized Curse, Savage Sauron, let's just go with fucking Sassy Cypher. He was so sassy. He was like, well, you're not going to like it, but the planet said your judgment sucks. And I'm like, okay, Cypher, my gosh, this fucking guy used to basically be a palm pilot and now he's a fucking monster remember that time that charles xavier was like we're not going to tell doug he's a mutant because his mutant power is useless yeah yeah i mean I and remember. i i love doug and i have long said that i think you know anything has a language so doug is technically like potentially the most powerful mutant in existence like i think doug could unwrite reality but like it's shocking to me that i don't know that doug has a consistent voice across any titles like and that's not to say this doesn't sound like doug this just doesn't sound like some doug and maybe no Doug sounds like most Doug and this Doug was sassy. I feel like the consistent thing with Doug is that everybody wants Doug to have some form of BDE that often comes off more like sass. This being an example of that and the end of Inferno being a real moment of BDE for him but the whole idea being that like he's kind of playing his own game throughout this and I think every writer feels that. The idea that Doug 
Doug has his own form of control on Krakoa that is unique to him, the island, and Warlock, and now maybe Bay. But I agree with the idea that, like, the voice isn't necessarily consistent throughout that because all of us are going to have different ideas of how those things present themselves. I think with a character like Curse, it's kind of the same thing in that, like, people are all like, this wretched little goblin child, but how you write a wretched little goblin child's voice is going to be very different writer to writer and then what you're tasked with in your version of the story. So in a lot of the earlier stories, Curse is just like a wretched little monster that happens to be the size of a 12-year-old. Like, there just isn't really anything redeeming except that I guess you have to be like, it's a kid, but like, she's written so horribly that you kind of are like, is she even a kid or does she just look like a kid? Like, does she have a child's innocence? What is going on with this demon baby? And then at the end of this, you're like, oh, that poor kid, she just wanted a friend. But boy, did she do a lot of murders with her wishes to get that friend. I don't know how to feel about it. It is something that when many writers share custody of a character, at its most beautiful and brilliant, you really do establish a consistent voice for a character that writers can pick up on and do something with. I think you have pointed to two really great examples in Doug and in Curse of everybody gets what's at the core of what's going on with the character but then how you write them and how especially you write their interactions with the rest of the world and how they speak that can really vary greatly and make it feel a little bit inconsistent i am eager to see where x-men green ultimately goes there were some other really key moments that i thought were interesting seeing a little more orcus especially with all of the events that came to follow this in judgment day interesting i was ultimately very glad that for issue 48 being into like you know a fight into a conversation and then 49 just being more talking until just curse dies and that's just where we're at just dead i think we are at a place where this was a this was a bold move and i want to see them follow up on it in a meaningful way but if they don't it feels like they can kind of brush it off under the rug as oh well it was unlimited and i'm very curious to know if they just said everybody do your and then and we'll see how insane this gets and if it's too insane we we can just sweep it under the rug because it's unlimited now something that they could not sweep under the rug certainly was the hellfire gala this year i had no problem with this year's hellfire gala i didn't love maybe the actual story itself you know the issue didn't represent my definitive hellfire gala but i've said this a few times last year's hellfire gala by the end of editing it i was just actually in tears sometimes just like if i fucking hear the word gala one more time i couldn't take another episode where we talked about another fucking part of the gala with the knights of x they were dropping like 11 t parts every week and then the gala just took forever so this year's gala being like one issue plus some other stuff was pretty good. And this X-Men Unlimited exploration of it being weekly and running across two X-Men Unlimited titles. I really love this. Like I actually, weird statement, really would have fucking loved this in the Hellfire Gala and make the Hellfire Gala like a premier trade and make this the B story in the back because publishing this weekly did it such a disservice. 
it made it so much less palpable than the moment it happened. And I like this, I think, more than I liked most of the gala issue. How did everybody feel about X-Men Hellfire Gala secret X-Men confessionals and 50 through 55? I enjoyed this issue. I, I don't think uh, these issues. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with them. I like seeing Monet because Monet is a badass and she is the moment and she is an icon. And I like seeing her say, mm, I can handle this. I can do, I have a lot of responsibility on my shoulders, but there's plenty of things that I can do that I don't need help with. Something that I actually did, I kind of appreciate about this is that they gave us three perspectives that all culminated to those singular perspective towards the end. And I thought that was pretty cool. I like that we kind of got what everybody was doing that led up to the moment of them confronting the Typhon group that I will say I don't particularly care for. They seemed not to use his name in vain, but like maggots. They seemed like, how could you not squash them? They seemed very easy to defeat. Yeah, the they were maybe kind of a lame villain. Nico, I can understand what you're saying about how it sort of took some something away, the fact that these this was a weekly release rather than just one story released at once. In terms of the gala, especially, like the fact that this is all happening at the gala, it takes something away from the gala for sure. Because by the time we finish, it's so far away. And I feel like this started significantly after the one issue was released. So like really diluting that particular event which has now already been diluted by the fact that we're doing a second one a year later even though we kind of all agree that a year can't have passed in universe time it's all very weird maybe the x-men are just partying a lot right now i really respect that for the mutants they deserve it for the secret x-men team it was good to see them week after week building a story that like you kind of had to invest in over a longer period of time versus the one and done secret x-men issue that was something i had said earlier i i can kind of see how both things are true and i guess at the end of the day i'm kind of rooting for the team and the characters more than i'm really rooting for the gala at this point because i kind of like a break i feel like we all agree that the cool thing about the event is the clothes and these amazing artists coming up with their spin on what a beloved character would wear to an event so keep doing that just don't make it you know uh, a cocktail party every year in the meantime what a great group of characters to bring together and have fight together yeah the villain is pretty lame and feels pretty rudimentary especially for of all people like monet and siren i just don't believe would feel any sort of threat by these guys but even still at that point it's really just kind of we just want to see what they're all doing and what they're all wearing how they're all talking to each other are these characters that we do want to invest in long term do we feel like they're going anywhere really my favorite part of the whole thing is that interaction that we get between monet and emma in which it is very clear that they have a strong working relationship and a lot of respect because i think that having seen emma grow so much as a character and monet grow so much as a character in very separate stories that very rarely interact the fact that they knew each other for so long from generation x you do kind of want to see after all this time when we meet back together in paradise like how do we interact with each other and i think this is exactly the interaction that i was hoping for in all of that so for all that i'm not sure if i liked it for the way it was broken up or hated it because it really diluted another event i am really happy that there were some solid moments so one of the things that this gave us an opportunity to do 
was dial into the personalities of the characters. And I appreciated that because I think one of the big problems when it comes to these votes is the reality of no one's going to vote for that fucking person. It's cool that they're on the ballot. I love that they're on the ballot. But Micromax, I don't know that I would describe that as Micromax's personality. Uh, I think it's within the scope of it. And I'm not saying that Steve Fox in any way didn't get the character right. Sure did. But I don't know that that's exactly how I see the character, which just means that like maybe the Micromax that didn't get voted for was the one Steve Fox wrote. And I am unaware of some of the bigger perception of this character. I still think he's a joke. I'm not like, oh, you guys came for someone I love. No, I'm just like, I think he sucks in a different way. And there's a certain amount of if we don't have a reason to ever vote for these people, how will they make it on the team? I love that Gentle looks cool. Gentle looks cool as shit. How will they ever make it on the team? And if they just look cool and we never know who they are, seeing who they are here is kind of nice, but and it's not at all a criticism of the writing. It's actually a little bit more a criticism of the form that it had to be given in. Some of these characters are kind of jokey characters and their jokiness kind of makes me go, oh, well, I'm not going to vote for them if I could vote for somebody more serious. And, you know, Shy putting dupe on the vote and dupe definitely winning dupe would win i think we could make it happen guys let's make it happen i think dupe should win the next vote if we could get dupe on the ballot please i think marvel might just put dupe on the ballot thinking he's like a micro max and then he gets all the votes everyone will be like oh slimer sure i didn't realize disney bought ghostbusters and um anyway so i think the spotlight on each individual vote t was a really smart way to make me care because absolutely the typhon group silly ambassador percy face not my jam i was lost on some of what was going on as much as i when i figured out what was happening loved the order of things but then i feel like in some ways perhaps there is a treatment of gorgon that is uncomfortable and problematic and it's not specifically steve fox it's a precedent that has been set by several writers for this character and i feel it comes off a certain way like a character like a, a certain type of nervous equates to helpless and there's just some questions of the portrayal that I'm not sure I love and for him ultimately to die was not great but damn did I love a good Hail Hydra moment. Anytime that Hydra shows up for people to like mercilessly destroy them is like a good moment in my book. So you just chop them up man. Just go for it. And uh, getting to see Monet be so sisterly with Teresa was incredible that she says she took out the claws to keep up with Teresa. I don't care the context. I just like that Monet shows a moment of sisterhood with another hero. I really agree with that. I mean, it's a really shining moment for Monet. I really enjoyed Monet's interactions with Avalanche. I thought they were like the two stars. I feel bad saying this, but most everybody else came off kind of annoying in like a fine way, in a way that like they're probably all a little drunk. They're all like hyped up over the vote of like they didn't win. So like it's an inexplicable annoyance that like I can get it. But it just felt like everybody else was a little whiny in a way that I was like, y'all are superheroes. Y'all are mutants. Can you stop acting brand new for like 30 seconds and like just deal with the problem? At hand. It's especially tough with the kid X-Men, Hisako, Surge, Bling, because at one time or another, they have really 
more or less. I mean, like Nezno has absolutely been an X-Man. X-Men Red was weird, but whatever. Uh, Hisako like really was an X-Man. All of them were, you know, the Academy X new X-Men kids. They went through a lot. They have absolutely fought a ton. And so bringing in questions of whether or not they're X-Men does often, it can be a trap that makes them seem whiny because why are they even worrying about this or considering this? At the same time, it's such a bummer that the vote didn't go in the direction of any of those kids because I do really want to see them. I can't accept that they haven't grown up in some capacity such that they're still kind of the kids whining about being accepted as being one of the big kids. Ultimately, no matter what, I think it should have gone to Monet, but I I just love Bling so much. I love all of those kids so much and really want to see them get their due that I just like, as fun as it is to have them and as much as I can believe the story, I don't need a story in which they are still trying to figure out whether or not they're X-Men. And like, I'm not trying to be like specifically weird about it, but something that I don't know we've ever seen addressed is I sort of need Scott Summers or uh, probably more like Alex these days. I need an Alex to be like, I don't know why these Academy X kids are always throwing fits about how they're not taken seriously. And I need Karma to just come in and be like, you don't understand. You were part of the first generation of X-Men. There was no one above you. You won't retire. If you won't stop being number one, how will they ever be you to make you proud? And like, that's sort of the eternal curse of the sidekick. The sidekick never gets to make the hero proud until it's too late for the hero to be the hero anymore. And with a lot of these characters, it is sort of that curse. I even think you see that in Monet, in Teresa, and likewise in Jamie and Guido. I think they're even, and the Starjammers, like, these are a bunch of characters who, because they've always been number two, they've never really gotten to bang up to number one. And I think that has always held back their capacity to function at a top-notch level. Yeah, I can't argue with that in any way. I mean, I think that is exactly it. I, of course, get why, for comics purposes, we're never retiring Scott Summers' Cyclops. But if we don't make a big change and embrace the that I I think the New Mutants and Generation X are two fantastic examples of teams that at this point, they simply are adults of a pretty significant age. And while they don't need to be called the X-Men, they need to be given some title that is recognized with the respect of people who have reached the level of knowledge so that they are now certainly peers with Cyclops and even though Cyclops is always going to be older and they can always learn a thing or two from him they are they work in concert not as tiered versions of the same sort of generational hope for the future I really just think shaking up that paradigm entirely would be the next big thing to really do with all of these people. I think the real haunting of the gala for me in a lot of ways is I don't think I accept that the X-Men should be a roster anymore. And it's actually in part because of these unlimited stories. I love the nature of the structure that having a wealth of characters to draw from allows. I understand why we can't really do it, though. I would really, if you told me that X-Men was going to become a weekly 690 
1999 book that was an arc length single issue every week by different creative teams every week buying it buying it buying it cover me in it every cover ah uh, nom 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 I'm eating it up I couldn't stop <laughs> oh god I ate so many I'm so full I need this book because I love that we go right from the Hellfire Gala to another very familiar team and this Hellfire story really did suffer from being stretched out the way we felt the original Jason Lowe I almost said Jason Brass <laughs> Jamie Madrox and Strong Guy Story was oh my gosh Strong Guy Story was sort of lost in being diffused across multiple issues and speaking of that, X-Friends is such an exciting story because seeing Jason Lowe get to come back, tell more of this amazing tale, was really exciting. I love Antonio Fabella's colors. There's an excitement to this. I perhaps think one of the things this does fall victim to is the nature of cyclical storytelling for characters who can't escape the gravity of their own nature. Like Jonah said, I could use to see Jamie and Guido break out of these sorts of arguments, but this is the hallmark of their friendship going back through the pad runs. This isn't new for them, which in and of itself is both complexly rewarding and annoying. And I would love to get your guys' take on this new three-parter. I think there's a lot to enjoy about this, but I hear what you're saying, Nico, that this is if this is the core of their friendship. But I think there's a different conflict you can give them that isn't the exact same conflict they had in their previous X-Men Unlimited story. It really kind of feels like we just went back to square one with the only aftermath of what happened there is that now we have Ross and Rachel, who are essentially just blue Jeff Deland sharks. I don't see any problem with this. It's also, it's kind of a little bit like hangover vibes. Uh, I don't, it, mostly just because they're at a casino and there's a baby involved. The rehashing of Guido saying, you don't make enough time for me. I don't want to hang out with your clones. I want to hang out with Jamie Prime does feel a little bit hollow when they've already tried to talk about this and they're already tried to work on this. So does that mean Jamie's not working on this? Because does that mean his friendship is not important to him to Guido? But is Guido also not understanding the the responsibilities of parenthood and being a father has to come first for many things. It feels weird to me that this is their second time so close together to having this argument. That being said, I enjoyed everything else about this. I enjoyed part of these clones going rogue. I enjoyed this reappearance of the Star Jammers and Jamie having to be like, hey, Scott, can you give me your dad's phone number? Oh, um, just so I could ask about tips on being a father. Yeah, yeah, I know you're a father too, but like, really, Jamie, that's your cover to ask Corsair about being a father? That is the big Biggest, the biggest giveaway that something is up. I think after all that we've had of multiple men in X Factor and X Factor Investigations, he's a fantastic character, but I'm super happy that the big story that he's gotten recently is not really a traditional superhero story. It's much more of a character story that focuses on the kind of stuff that you always have to return to with Jamie, regardless of the type of book that he's in, which is that he's a little bit of a fuck up. He's very funny. He has this best friend and now they're just so entrenched in insane super heroics that even when they just try and go have a nice friend's day out the insane world that they live in starts to get enmeshed and the fact that he's a fuck up is really the thing that is pushing forward the story but we're not seeing them like fight the bad guys or rescue anybody or do anything like that they're literally just trying to like recover from the complete having the rug rug taken out from under them 
that happened the night before. The kid exists. I mean, that he is married to Layla Miller and conceived a child with her. I just, I guess we're, we're just sticking with him and Cannonball have get married and have kids sure i guess like you'll be boring forever fantastic i didn't see that for him this story was the first time that i was like okay i can do something with it because maybe madrox really should never be anything like a traditional superhero again but should just be a lens through which we can view superhero status and enjoy the comedy of the whole thing and the absurdity of it if he's always going to be a character like that i guess i'm more okay with him being a father i guess eventually this layla thing will just have gone on for so long that we will forget how inappropriate it is that it happened in the first place i'm starting to get there jason lowe really is doing the good work and the good writing to make it fun and funny and you can tell that he just loves both of these characters and putting them in a situation and i just i always want to see them in a situation and I am such a big fan of Jason Lowe. You know, it's really funny because you think about characters that you connect with and you want to write. And Jamie Madrox, for being a guy who can be anybody, really has one voice. And that's the most ridiculous statement. And like Jason Lowe just gets it so right. Where even like, I'm like, ah, I want to be the guy that writes everything. Oh, Jason got there first. Hey, buddy. <laughs> nope. I see it. I see it. Y'all yours. I'm going to, I'm going to look this way. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on Roy Fortune Spellbound 2024 coming. Hi. So um, I really, Cataclysm, I really get the... <laughs> <laughs> I really get the the inclination to when you love a character and you know you understand their voice really explore it I genuinely don't understand Davy being involved in it but that's where I think I love Madrox and don't identify with him anymore like this feels very all of the decisions that I thought of Madrox's that were terrible in this were very Madrox decisions and I think maybe at this point I no longer identify with him and I instead identify him as a character I love and with that I think I've probably lost some of that voice because I think for me that voice was of a time and seeing Jamie in this new way where I think now I am older than him if not the same age as him where I had always been younger than him and I see where he is immature growing up I was, I was like people are always calling him immature what the fuck I don't understand he's just got that weird bodysuit he should stop wearing oh my god but now I'm like no he's He's really immature. Guido, body goals, but not much better. And it makes me wonder about how these characters are going to continue to be perceived. You know, I compared the nature of the B-list status, even just, you know, analogously, even though I said, you know, clearly Madrox way higher. I compared him to the characters from The Vote, like including, you know, Gentle and Micromax and Armor and Bling. And are they going going to have Jason Lowe's trying to write stories about them years from now. And I'm also not trying to say that Jason Lowe doesn't have like a great Guido voice, but like affectionately, I think Guido is a more accessible character. I think, you know, you kind of start with Ben Grimm, you go a little bit more Kevin James, you sort of throw a slice of pizza at it and <laughs> you've got it. Don't ever give anyone those instructions in real life. Well, I just gave them to everyone listening. 
listening. So how do you guys feel about the nature of the like time to focus on two very specific characters in Madrox and Strong Guy? I guess if I call it Madrox, I speak Madrox and Caracella um, in these multiple arcs. Do you guys feel that that's like an appropriate use in the pages of X-Men Unlimited when we're seeing Monet only appear in these much larger group montages? I mean, I think this is a particular creator who has shown an affinity for this character. You know, he cosplays as him sometimes. Like, it's, there's a real charm to it. I I think there are many people who would love to write Monet. There's probably fewer people out there for whom Monet is the one. And I think just the nature of how many characters there are that are that kind of status where they've never had somebody write them like that and how many writing positions are available at Marvel. It's just not going to happen for a lot of characters, which is unfortunate. I mean, expand the Infinity Unlimited line and give this to everybody. I would absolutely love to see. But this is a really charmed moment for a particular character by a particular creator and the matchup just works. I wouldn't want to see just anybody. You know, I wouldn't even necessarily want to see Steve Orlando or Steve Fox writing like Monet if that's not their one person that they're like so gung-ho about I'm not as enthusiastic about it in the same way I love the way Steve Fox wrote Monet and I thought it was a fantastic story and I want to see more Monet but this is a really unique thing where it's like this guy who did this amazing webcomic about Jamie Madrox and then came all the way up into writing this story that is about Jamie Madrox and you know Guido I think you're right is an easier character to believably give voice to um, between different writers but I think the thing is if you love Madrox there's a degree to which you have to love Guido and understand their dynamic enough to write him he gets all that stuff right and he tells a really cute funny cool story that has other great X elements to it and I mean I would certainly love to see more of that for other characters by other creators I just sort of at this point accept that it would be asking a lot to expect a lot of people to get the opportunity to write their most cherished character. I agree. I think a lot of what makes Marvel Unlimited accessible and fun to read is that you can tell with a lot of these stories, the writers care very deeply about these characters and enjoy getting to write them in these kind of scenarios, which tend to be a little more laid back and get to tell uh, stories that don't have to rely on such longer content forms because they don't have to worry about filling 22 pages. But ultimately, it also comes down to the end of the day, does somebody have a story that they want to tell that works with this medium, but that involves characters like Monet. I don't think everybody has a slice of life ready to pit a pitch for Monet as the lead where she or maybe a co-star go together and they do something. I don't think that people have that story readily available and I don't want to see characters for the sake of seeing characters. I like when you can tell a writer really enjoys a character and getting to put their little spin on them. I do think that there are plenty of other characters we could have gotten but I'd rather get characters we've seen in other unlimited stories before with a writer that feels comfortable writing these characters and putting them in a situation like this versus somebody who might be a little more uncomfortable or writing characters that they're not so gung-ho about where it comes across like okay kind of just feels like you're hitting like a character quota to say that you've written about them this year and then you don't have to write about them for the rest of the year i think i also think for more laid-back content certain characters lend themselves a little bit easier to it's a little bit easier to write a slice of life about guido and jamie for example because while they are important you know members of within the cocoon 
community, Jamie has an infinite number of clones that can do the jobs that he needs to get done. He can kind of have these moments and Guido isn't part of any major team, so he's not really doing anything either. But someone like Monet, she has these responsibilities that we've seen over in X-Core that really, I don't know if everybody's going to want to see board meetings or uh, other kind of more day-to-day tasks that Monet has to go through as leader of X-Core. I mean, I guess co-leader with Angel, whatever. You know, one of the things that I started this whole conversation with is sort of like the multitude of what you might see in X-Men Unlimited. I can't believe that this book has run what feels like 60 issues at this point, and it has covered so many ideas, so many corners of the Marvel Universe and the X-Universe, seeing it tie into other books, like feeling like this is part of Steve Orlando's big plan. It gives the X-Men a little bit more credence and reality and grounding in what these characters are meant to be. And I feel as though we can we can say that there's a big attempt to make digital books happen at Marvel. And we can say that there's a big attempt to make the Unlimited franchise a bigger deal, but without more books that use these writers, whether the established names like Steve Orlando or up-and-coming names like Steve Fox and Jason Lowe, I really think we're seeing something really palpable here. You know, the Jake Gomez Werewolf by Night story, man, I'm going to keep talking about it, especially because this is coming out right around Halloween. I think that was another great, hey, you know, this is a character that's just been introduced. Let's, you know, ground them a little further into the mythos. That's what I feel like this series is getting right more than anything. It's giving me more mythos. And the fact that it's not charging me $3.99 for what would have been the most annoying issue that was just a fight between Nature Girl and Sauron, good. I'm excited about what this presents. I think, too, they're really striking a great balance. And this is a team effort, editorial, the creators, everybody involved is striking a great balance with giving us stories that do feel like they matter. I don't ever feel like I'll look at anything that I've read in these unlimited issues and say, I mean, that might as well not even be canon. But I also know that you cannot have the biggest event in a character's history take place in a digital subscription-only book that will never be printed. Striking the weight of story beats such that they feel like they matter, but they are not so completely inaccessible to people is a really tough thing to do. And I feel like that is something that, like, a lot of the Infinity line throughout, but especially X-Men Unlimited, has really knocked out of the park. I feel like these stories matter a lot to me as a reader, matter a lot to the canon that I form as a reader for various characters, but they're not such an ask that, you know, in 10 years when somebody else is coming onto the scene and back reading X-Men issues, should they miss these for whatever reason, they will have no idea who Jamie Madrox truly is. Ultimately, I'm really happy with what we got, and I love the continued use and success of Marvel Unlimited and using these Infinity Comics in a way that feels fun and fresh and really just super easy to read, and I think that's what a lot of comics should be. I think that's something that there should be the duality of comics in. I think there should be these very, you know, story-driven pieces of art that you can pick up and, like, you can really get invested into, and I also think there should be some very light media that you could pick up, read for five minutes, and then put down and go about your day. And I'm really loving how much Marvel is putting faith into these Infinity Comics, and I hope to see more great stories in the future. (music) 
Hey everyone, we have got an exciting double feature of books to cover with you. I'm calling this our Friendship Never Ends double feature where we are covering New Mutant 31 and Exterminators number two. Both strong books about the bonds of friendship. Oh my god, so saccharine. <laughs> <laughs> Friendship is magic. Friendship is magic. <laughs> it never ends in the word of the Spectro. Friendship never ends. <laughs> I don't think MLP ever came with a gore warning, though. <laughs> I'm Nathan, everyone. You can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the age of apocalypse. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D R A N T I S 82. And that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Sanguine Threads. That's right, come over and look for me with Sanguine Threads, because I am currently rebranding. Yay. (laughs) Everybody loves a good Mm rebrand. It's only like my fifth, whatever. (laughs) You'll get it right. I believe in you. Hello, it's me, and my name is Steve, and my pronouns are they and them, and you can find me on Twitter at howdyduda. It's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And we hope you survive this saccharine sweet experience that we're going to deliver to you. Um, <laughs> New Mutants 31 is written by Charlie Jane Anders, uh, Alberto Everkirke with Rose Stein and Ted Brandt as our artists, and Rose Stein and Ted Brandt are on the Young Sheila and Morgan section. We've got Carlos Lopez and Tamara Bond Villain on colors, uh, Tamara Bond Villain specifically on the Young Sheila and Morgan, and we've got VC's Travis Lanham on letter and overall production for this issue. So, like, I, I gotta say, so we're off to a new start of a new era for new mutants this picks up on charlie jane anders story in marvel pride voices 2020 where were we with that story before we hopped into this actual issue itself did everybody read that story did everybody love it i thought it was interesting i didn't know that it, that they were actually going to take it somewhere so this is interesting to see how they're going to continue on with this character yeah, I thought it was cute. I really liked the little flashback panels that were on most of the pages, but I wasn't really sure how it was going to be moving forward. So ha- seeing it here was definitely piqued my interest. I just reread the uh, Pride story in order to prepare for talking about this. And when I first read it, it was one of my favorite stories in that Pride collection of this year. I immediately loved Sheila Sexton. I'm always excited to see a new trans mutant that is explicitly trans on the page and can tell trans stories about them. It's something that a lot of us have been clamoring for for a really long time and Sheila was just a perfect fit for New Mutants right off the bat just because of that. I'm really excited to see her actually become a part of the team and stories going forward and interact with Krakoa even if she doesn't necessarily trust Krakoa yet. And more than anything, I appreciate the uh, commitment to take one of these characters that are introduced in Marvel Pride and actually make them a real character set within the real continuity. So many times we get new characters introduced in these things and they appear once, maybe one more time, but they don't really get a chance to make a mark. So I'm, I'm loving that we are getting a trans character that is getting the chance not only to shine from one of the Pride specials, but also she is set up to take the basic the center role in this at least this current arc of new mutants so I, i'm psyched to see that and i love to see the support behind that for non-gender conforming characters and just the whole team of friends the lost club basically just adopting escapade in so perfect and it fits so well into the character as she was introduced before are we loving the lost club how are we feeling about the situation in general 
feel like Escapade fits so so neatly into the Lost Club. I mean, Vida Ayala was definitely using Kosmar to tell stories that are trans-adjacent or uh, on a subtextually level about things that are important to trans people or, or at least to some trans people. I like the idea of like the Lost Club are a bunch of mutants who don't really trust Kokoa because of how like the troubling attitude that they had towards clones and resurrecting Gabby for all that time. And then I don't know the way that several of them have had like this distrust of the adults on Krakoa and how the Krakoan adults were kind of ignoring them when they had vital information to share about real and present threats to the youth of Krakoa. So like the Lost Club, even though they, they also are not going to like necessarily help Escapade feel better about the Krakoan adults or the Krakoan nation. And there are some good reservations to be had there. They are a good way for Sheila to get more comfortable with the idea of being around other mutants and being like in community with people like her without having to worry about, you know, joining up with foreign nations military or whatever, however she thinks of Krakoa. So I I think that's, I think that's cool. I don't think there's another group. She she couldn't like slot in with like the adult new mutants kids or anything like that. Right. Also too, how old is Escapade supposed to be? I'm guessing teens. Oh, I, I definitely took her as like, you know, 14, 15 year old ish. But I'm like, why is the Lost Club still on their bullshit? Like I get I get certain amount of distrust and whatnot, but they literally teamed up with the Shadow King and were being manipulated by the Shadow King. And yet they're still sitting there as if they were completely right in everything they said and that, you know, the, the grown-ups are bullshit. And I'm like, Excuse me. Their actions did lead to like the Shadow King, well, being removed from Amal Farouk and the reformation of his character. Like they were, I, I know they got manipulated, but like in the end, they did end up helping another mutant who was in, in pain and suffering, right? Yes, but you would think that they would at least somewhat rethink some of their own biases and especially the stuff that Shadow King fed them. You think they would rethink that and and at least tell Escapade about that? Like, hey, you gotta be careful no matter who. We got manipulated manipulated by one of the most terrible forces amongst mutant kind but no they're like yeah no the adults suck it's like bitch (laughs) you learned nothing (laughs) that was kind of my frustration too it felt sort of disconnected from the stories that we had been reading throughout the past i don't know it just felt weird i like the way that escapade melds in with the group but the way that they're feeding her this version of events just it feels off. Well, she's getting a lot of different versions of events from different people on Krakoa, which I think I think is super interesting to read about a character who doesn't know all of this mutant history necessarily, hasn't been here for all these battles. And she's getting, you know, the Lost Club's like view of people. She's getting Rain's view of the island. Something that I've been thinking about is how much she's being manipulated by Destiny and Emma Frost, because like up until really recently, I had forgotten that Destiny could just fucking lie about the future. <laughs> and so like uh... with Morgan Red and Emma, I'm like this is definitely a way to get emma to come to krakoa what like probably for her benefit to get her to train but also there's the ulterior motive of having all of the mutants like be kind of like on the side of the nation that they're building and i'm wondering just how much of this dream is being shared accurately between the two of them everybody's like oh she can tell the future so like if she just were to say like be careful don't slip on that banana you're gonna be like oh my god thank you she just saved my life and like there was probably like no intention of you or like no chance of you actually slipping on that banana (laughs) Well, that's probably more like, yeah, don't slip on that banana. And you avoid the banana and then get hit by the Mack truck. (laughs) 
I get what y'all are saying about the Lost Club. I have to remember that they're, that they're teenagers. And, mm. you know, there's a lot of things that they're still going to be right about Krakoa. You know, uh, the adults are trying to slog through and create a new ma- nation. And the kids are just, like, able to look back and say, hmm, is that what we really want to do? But these are really interesting questions to ask about nation building. I- I'm here for the whole ride on it. Was anybody getting a bit of a escapade in love with Martha Johansson? I was trying to figure out if she's crushing on her or if she's just like, oh my God, this is going to be my new bestie. Mm. Like, mm. I, I couldn't quite tell if it was like a Madison Wongers situation or if it was like, oh my God, she's so hot. I was definitely getting crushing vibes off of the uh, their interactions. So yeah, I, I can see where, where you got that. <laughs> I did sense a little bit of a crush on Cerebella here and I thought that was fun. Whether that's a friend crush or not, you know, teenagers work in mysterious ways for me the jury's out because this is only the second time i've seen these two new characters but i think there's a lot of potential for a lot of different relationships between these characters i love that cerebella has you know a lot in common with other uh trans mutants and subtextually trans mutants and that she has a brand new body now that she's walking around and to feel like herself again for the first time in a very long time the lost club all have so many body issues together sort of like draws them together as a unit like one of the things that did detract from this issue for me a little bit is that it, it feels like charlie jane andrews has not yet found the voice for each of these characters which is fair this is like literally her first issue writing any of these characters but like yeah it doesn't feel like the lost club have found their voices yet under this pen and i feel like under albuquerque's pen sometimes they their bodies look a little distorted or i can't tell if they're how old they're supposed to be or what their dimensions are but i'm Looking forward to that going away as this book gets a little bit more settled in. You know, it's only early days, but sometimes when I read these kids' dialogue, it, it feels a little bit like stilted or like cute for the sake of cuteness, but not in the way that like I think a teenager would talk. The art is such a different style than we're used to. And the, the writing, of course, is a different style that we're used to. So like, I'm not trying to judge too too strongly at first because they're, they've got to do so much to, you know, hey, this is our style and this this is how we're getting established and here's how we interpret things. You got to remember, even though it's issue 31 of a book, it's, it's the first issue of a new creative team. You know, it's so totally different than Vita. It's, it's a little bit of a jarring jump. Uh, but then I also have to remember that Vito, when they started out, even in the X office, Children of the Atom had its own uneasy steps. And then we all saw how magic their New Mutants run became. I just want to say to the creators, can you please be exceedingly careful about how you draw Leo and because there are some panels in here that definitely uh, like, I don't even think it's intentional, but it, it runs really close to just old style uh, yellow face propaganda i felt her emma frost was a little off it might have just been a combination between you know some of the dialogue choices and some of the art choices emma frost was a little bit of like a caricature of a villain with you know like a cat sitting on her lap and she's petting it kind of thing yeah she she definitely felt a little more malicious somewhat very early emma frost compared to where she's been lately where she really cares about the kids that's what throwing me off a little she's like like, she's totally, she's Sheila as, as a weapon and a mm-hmm. tool and not as a kid 
kid, which is so opposite of everything else that we've seen Emma Frost be presented as in the last few years. Fucking sublime shows up. Poor Sarah Bella. Oh. Like, oh my god. Poor girl just got her body back. Please do not put her through that trauma again. Like, yes, you can get resurrected, but please do not take her brain and put it back into the little jar. She deserves so much better. It was good to see Sarah Bella reminding herself that she beat Sublime the first time. She freed herself. You know, she was the one who loosened Emma Frost's psychic and fought back. She even mentioned that earlier in the, in the the issue too. So I mean the the trauma of being revisited by by that past trauma. It probably she forgot that she went through that affirmation of of her experience. I did not like the fact that they threw Sarabella into that so quickly because she literally just escaped this person not so long ago. They have been through absolute hell. They were a brain in a freaking globe for the longest time. They literally just got their body back and you're just going to straight up traumatize the living shit out of her again. Like, and, and that was the whole thing. It's like her character is drawn looking extremely traumatized and that was... I was not a fan of that, especially after what she did her. Totally get that, and I understand that as a reaction to seeing this happen again, but I feel like it's completely in line with everything that Vita had been doing throughout their long run on New Mutants, you know? It was having each of the New Mutants face, like, their greatest past traumas, the things that, like, tied them down, the things that held them back, and getting closure from them. And in the same way that we saw, like, Shan's relationship to the Shadow King, and some of Rain's inner problems, and stuff with Danny and stuff with Cosmar, and the wrap-up of Magic's arc, I think we're seeing more of the same here. I think we're seeing more of our new mutants be confronted again by the things that have tied their stories down to one type of story and then get closure from them. So I'm hoping that after this, we'll never need to see Cerebella traumatized by the U-Men or Sublime again, and maybe Cerebella can finally get some closure for you know from the man who took everything from her the first time. I felt the same way you did initially, Raven, and if she can come out of it stronger and hopefully no longer afraid. I hope it can push her forward, but I, I always hate the idea of, of throwing somebody back in that trauma. If anything else, it'll give her a story where she hasn't really had a prominent story like this. Literally my entire life is informed by tragedy and trauma. So to constantly see characters put through horrific trauma and facing their worst fears, like you don't always have to put your characters through tragedy and trauma and having them face the worst people who are ever in their lives in order to get them to grow and develop as a character slash as a person. So yeah, that's my two cents. What do we think about Escapade's powers? The fun page of her trying to be the, you know, trying to be Blob in the Green Lagoon, her playing with Jamie Madrox as an angel's power. Yeah, I mean, Escapade's power set is the kind of power set I instinctively find intensely frustrating, just like super baffling, because it's a power set that is essentially whatever the story demands. Whatever the writer wants to make the power do is what the power will do. And it's kind of impossible for a reader to get a fix on, like, 
what the power is capable of and what it's not capable of, or even like what it is really. And it seems it seems so unreliable as to be incredibly deadly to use. So I think I think there's a good reason that like Escapade is afraid to use it beyond even knowing that it'll result allegedly in Morgan Red's death. But it's just it's just one of those powers that like I mean definitely without Emma Frost training, I don't think there's any chance that this could be a useful power to Escapade in her career as a, a super criminal. So I, I think that's that's necessary to kind of like figure out how it works and how to control it. It feels very similar to Sync's power set. Obviously, she doesn't have as much training, so she can't quite use it to the same level that he has. It's similar, but not the same. Because she can basically trade powers or trade places. So it's it's honestly it's not even it's not even just one power it's kind of technically more like two because trading places being able to 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 switch positions is one thing but being able to borrow powers is another so it's kind of like she got Sync's powers and then Rogue's powers but without Rogue's powers drawbacks. If anybody remembers Nocturne, where her power set was really weird, like her power was she like jumped into somebody's mind, <laughs> but like yeah, possessor. She's an inhabiting spirit. It's kind of like that but it's got an extra added thing where you know escapade is in one place and the, and the other person is somewhere else i don't know it's i really am fascinated by it and there's a lot of possibilities for what you could do with it and obviously without training there's a lot of things that could go wrong i have a feeling that with the way that they keep pushing that morgan's powers are useless that they're actually going to come and be useful at some point in this arc i love that he thinks his power is useless and yet has not really thought over the ramifications of turning things chocolate yeah Yeah, turning organic things like human beings yeah like living people also like morgan and soft serve need to get together because they could throw a hell of a party I I love the idea, though, of us getting to see a whole group of, you know, mutants who are not necessarily fitting in the gender binary. Even the little cute joke the U-Man made when they were like, all these young mutants look trans or gender queasy. I was like, gender queasy? That's a funny word. I want to start calling everybody gender queasy. But yeah, I love that we're getting to see a focus. We actually have a Marvel book that in 2022, an X-Book that said, hey, let's actually explore the idea idea of trans mutants and you know all of the ramifications that that would bring especially in the Krakoan process and I hope that we get to see some of the ramifications through the resurrection process not that I ever want to see anybody die but I'd love to see you know um if the Krakoans would you know keep the body the way it currently looks or if it would get reset to the way it originally was there's a whole lot of questions right you know hopefully the five would alter you know your appearance based on what you want it to be I'd never thought we'd get a book where we had several trans creators on it several trans mutants on the page and also a trans turtle that can fly i'm loving it i'm like oh yeah he he's joining the jeff the land shark crew real fast oh yeah i didn't realize that hibbert was trans too uh yes hibbert uses any pronouns oh I love it. Amazing. I have high hopes for this book. I'm trying not to put it on the pedestal just yet. I'm trying not to compare it, which is so hard for me to do. But I I really want to see what happens next. And I'll, I'll even point out that we got to see Brother Nature and Cam in this book as well. So I'm hoping that they do more stuff with them. And there's there's so much they can do. I'm going to wait and, and see what they do with it because this is a lot. So, But I have high hopes and I really hope they do it well because I wanted to do well. I want it 
to do so well. Josie Nanders and team did an amazing job. This is this is a very solid book, and I am very excited to see where this is going. Going forward, I'll uh, I'll only be able to see more of what I like about this comic and resolve the things that I'm confused about. And I, I'm looking forward to it settling in with the art and the voices of the characters and feeling like Charlie Jane Anders' new mutant run. You know, not just a, a new transition to something new. Well, I guess it could be that too. I'm looking forward to seeing where this is going. Having this group together, separated from the rest of the the New Mutants and the the Lost Club, it's it's going to be interesting. And I'm I'm excited that we have new characters to explore stories with. And yeah, I I want to see where they take this. The Amazing Exterminators by Leo Williams is our writer. Carlos Gomez is our artist. Brian Valenza is our colorist. And BC's Travis Lanham on lettering and production. Oh, nothing good does ever happen after 2 a.m., does it? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> this was so good. <laughs> I... I love the fact that, that Leah and team are really leaning into this being a mature content book and, and running it as such. And they're like, by the way, and damn it, we told you. I love how horny this book is. I love how sexy this book is. As as a very intense Chainsaw Man aficionado at this point, I am just absolutely happy for Marvel, leaning a little bit more into lots of blood, short skirts, kinky clown fetish costumes. Like, I want more of this. This comic is amazing. I laughed my ass off out loud while reading through it. Just just <laughs> phenomenal. A plus. I want to know what Boom Boom's baby doll is made out of, because that thing doesn't shred for shit. <laughs> Seriously, how how is her outfit still intact? Because if any of it was missing, it would be much more mature content. Jubilee did get into a car accident full force at top speed in a car recently. <laughs> but like she also didn't wake up in the middle of a like a zombie swamp that smelled like swamp gas and then get covered in blood. So That's true. <laughs> I love that Dazzler who oh, is the most is like, like Savage Land Rogue. Yes. Right? Dazzler looks like Savage Land Rogue, even though she came in the most clothing <laughs> shirt ripped off oh my god oh i almost died laughing at that i'm like girl but i like the fact that even though her clothing has been just blown to shit and back there's holes everywhere it is just getting rough and ready it's still covering and it still is not like here you go here's all the goods like it still looks like well drawn and well executed and you can tell that it's more a tongue-in-cheek joke and it lands so well i love it yeah yeah a lot of the jokes in this land extremely well it just had me cackling it's like boom boom being a clown is the best joke of all like i don't <laughs> jubilee being a big fan of like wwe wrestling is extremely funny to me and perfectly in yes. character she says let's get let's give the people what they want which i could not help but read in like the best friends on AEW. you've got to give the people what they want laura is like oh dazzler how the fuck did you date that fucking creep and like she's like she's like oh my god leave me alone i have really bad taste in men don't you know this and like all, the whole time like jubilee and boom boom are just like kicking the shit out of each other in the background <laughs> yeah that's really good 
and I gotta say, I appreciate this take on Emma Frost. Wow, that is a very, very, very beautiful bonus that she has on. Very sexy as well. I feel like these are uh, only I... Halloween costumes in that Laura is in a witch costume, because if Laura was in, like, a maid costume, these would be these would be fetch outfits. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, and she is kind of a sexy witch, but uh, I would say nothing. Oh, yeah, and Dazzler would totally roleplay a cheerleader in bed. <laughs> Like, also, I am hey, seriously like appreciating the light bondage. <laughs> uh, yeah, they are in front of the council. They are just tied up with a really, 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 really nice light soft touch. Yeah, and, <laughs> and some curly like, vines. <laughs> right, and, well, and there's there's so many ways that that could have gone like wrong. It could have just looked really, really like seriously, seriously. But again, they have somehow kept not only dignity, clothing, and and panty shots out of out out of the panel they've done it in such a good way that you're like oh you're tied up but you're not helpless hot <laughs> i love this so much so uh we find out that zaris son of dracula father to alex is behind all of this what it's not arcade and murder world it is a vampire murder world i'm i'm digging this this is cool I, I can't wait to see where this goes but this is like i like the introduction they've got the the the, the poor girl who's just sitting there on uh alex and she's just like what is she wearing why does she look like she is a like a knockoff of like Sam? Tana and Vampirilla knocked together or something. <laughs> because she's a she's a generic vampire. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the fucking joke. She's a generic female vampire. Speaking of it's generic vampires, funny. I love that Dracula had a son and named him Zerus with a with an X, and Zerus had a son and named him Alex with an X. <laughs> uh, it's just like it reinforces my belief that Zerus is the lamest dude who's ever lived. <laughs> He's so different here from when he was in the Vampire Nation and Jason Aaron's Avengers, like he's literally unrecognizable, looks completely different. It's not like he's Alucard. This is probably the best Zerus has ever looked. Got it. Yeah. Like, to be well, honest. For sure. He is rather pretty. It would be nice to get Carlos Gomez doing Dracula. Draw Dracula for me. I want to see if they can sexy up this, this old man Dracula they've been doing. <laughs> Oh, come on. You know they can. I mean, yeah. can, but I haven't seen them do it in a really long time. <laughs> this is true. I, I guess I guess you do have to throw down that gauntlet in order to make sure that uh that, that gets done. So, uh, Daddy Dracula, we're waiting. I feel like we we have a chance of seeing Dracula in this. I mean, he's he's been mentioned a couple times. There was a report sent to him about our four heroines. Yeah, <laughs> Dracula's showing up a lot lately. Dracula is, he like, is. threatening war in Moon Knight right now now and threatening more with Krakoa here. He's a busy vamp with a busy schedule. Yeah, he's got a nation to run. But part of running nations is, is starting wars. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I love how when the glass comes down, like Boom Boom and Jubilee are still like they were still fighting right up until that second. <laughs> They're like, well, oh, I shit. mean, Jubilee is fighting. I think Tabby's just trying to escape. <laughs> Jubilee's like, wow, this turned me on a lot more than I expected, Tabby. I need Jubilee to give somebody like a widow's peak in the next issue. I just like, please give Jubilee wrestling powers all the time. <laughs> the level of, of sexy and objectification, but not objectification at the same time time not showing the worst possible like like letting letting the, the the page be sexy and fun and and not overly gross yes yes is it designed to be sexy and fun yes so there might be there is going to be some aspect of objectification of these characters but i think it boom boom wants everybody to objectify her i mean they're definitely being objectified there's like no 
way around that, but that's like the point of the book, right? Is to like have some sexy fun. I do think it's always important to keep in mind that like, you know, when these characters are treated as their own protagonists and they're not literally objects for men to drool over in the comic or outside of it and like treated as if they don't have any interiority, obviously that's bad. But just drawing sexy comic book characters kicking ass and like having stories about themselves is not a crime. And I'm very happy to have more of it. Well, because in this book, they do sexy, but they they leave our characters with their agency. And that's something we don't yeah, often see. They're, that's they're something not that... Right. Exactly. So it's like, is Boom Boom sexy? Are they doing a lot of cheesecake poses? Yes. But are they always keeping like crotches covered, nipples, you know, covered? Are they still in charge of what's more or less happening to their person? Or are they, you know, being horribly, you know, pinned down and cruel things? Done? No, like they always keep their agency and i love that i can love that yeah these characters could spend the rest of the time covered in nothing but blood like body paint and i could really enjoy it as long as it wasn't because some vampire man stripped them down and tortured them to get them in that position you know like if they all want to just take off their clothes because there's too much blood on it that's cool that could be a really fun story i cannot imagine marvel editorial letting that one through at all but still I am still stuck looking at this Dazzler painting herself and then the Dazzler sandwich of Dazzlers. I'm like, how do you do softcore lesbian wrestling with yourself? <laughs> well, they found a way. I know. It's crazy. Like, we say all the time that AEW needs to, like, really pay more attention to its women's division, but maybe they just need to take a turn t- towards Like, if they ever need an example of, okay, here's how we're going to do this and make it work this because i mean between being in a figure four leg lock that's a sharpshooter that's a straight up sharpshooter and they got it right not only did they get it right like you get to have boobs and butts and just you get all this it's so it's so horny but so fun that panel is such a great indicator and i I always try to tell my friends about this the reason wrestling is sexy is because this is what it looks like like when you're watching Mm -hmm. wrestling whether it's women wrestling men wrestling intergender wrestling nb's wrestling like it's always sexy because this is this right here on the page is really what it looks like in the ring like it's a horny sport it's a fun time to watch you can watch it for the story you can watch it for the athleticism but you can also just watch it because it's hot <laughs> glad this writing team clear this writing and art team clearly uh have a good grasp on that mm-hmm. oh yeah daniel mm-hmm. johnson draws a lot of uh wrestling in his comics and i really appreciate that but it never quite captures the eroticism of a general wrestling match yes and having laura say right afterwards can you keep it down i can't listen with all that grunting <laughs> <laughs> I don't, don't grunt <laughs> I don't grunt was so good. You know, okay, in the world of things that, like, I never thought I would say, but I would be okay with Wolverine dating Dazzler. Yeah, I would be okay with Wolverine dating not a dude for once, especially one that doesn't seem right for her. Like, I'm sorry, but Angel, come on. Stop trying to make her not a lesbian. Marvel. (laughs) Please and thank you. I kind of want to know how strong Dazzler really is to be able to rip the head off of one of her doppelgangers. That's so yes, like, like a, that's like a body. <laughs> if you put her in a sharpshooter, it should be strong enough to have its head ripped off immediately by a normal <laughs> human. I mean, we know Dazzler lifts weights, but like, shit. I love Tabby just taking a piece of glass and attacking her doppelganger. It's like oh splitting God. their throats. What? Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, I didn't it's even notice that. Uh, uh, it is like it is uh, it is seriously an action packed uh issue. And it's so so good. 
you know what? I just realized that even in the reflection, we don't get upskirts. And if we do, like they are, they are, they all look like safety shorts. I am so here for this. Yeah, that is really, 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 really nice to see. And you're right, Raven. Like Tabby's dress is made of just the perfect material that never. It's made from vibranium because it don't, <laughs> it don't. It, like there's, I don't see a single like ripped hair. Well, yeah. Like it's always perfectly pleated. <laughs> I'm like. Yeah. God damn, I need one of those. Boom Boom even exploded the entire structure they were in. I mean, like, <laughs> Boom Boom is questionably never affected by her powers, but it's it's always funny to see that not only is her skirt and stockings not affected by it, but nobody else's is either. Like, Dazzler maybe has slightly less of a pant leg on. <laughs> well, that's okay. Dazzler has too many clothes on right now. She can, she can, she can Savage Land Rogue it, take a few more off. Just she's, she's it. it's fine, it's fine. Objectify yeah. Dazzler. It was cool to see them all just like beating up their other selves. Yeah, Wolverine splitting, splitting herself in half like the Soul Splitter that she is. Jubilee's more of a slam your face against a window person, as we have seen her in a car wreck. Yeah, I, we know mutants are like a little bit stronger, and that's why they can survive head-on collisions and rip people's heads off, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be the the explanation. Yeah, I mean they've always said mutants are a little bit stronger than normal humans. The Gene Nation Death Arena Gate after incident report with you know the little blurbs on our four heroes. I did. I especially liked uh, Jubilee how they you know mentioned like, hey, hey, remember Zerus once turned her into a vampire, and they're like, hey, guess what? She can mutant. She can detonate matter on a subatomic level i wonder if uh leah is going to take her there at the end of this issue to have them get out of that that seems like a little bit of like a hmm okay of course then again in this book i could see a lot of freaking things happening so oh yeah yep white bondage lesbian wrestling you see the classic kirby crackle rising off their doppelgangers after they defeat them what did you all think about fairy the mutant question mark that's chained up by the vampires and being used to do something i'm unsure we don't really see what fairies power or entrance is yet it's clear the vampire nation is going to kill them uh but they're using them for something i thought that fairy came from like other worlds because that's how alex was using the fey magic ah right was that it i yeah. forgot what happened yeah. in the first issue about the, the other world magic okay that totally makes sense right so is this person's not named fairy this is a fairy because mm. alex at the end of the mirror thing says fairy make an entrance mm. and then fairy says and then you'll let us yeah. go right into the uh thing into the arena oh now i understand i totally misunderstood that when i read make an entrance i was thinking like oh like you're going to make an entrance like a dramatic entrance in and like do something with mm. your powers but i see now that they went literally an entrance into the crystal thing all right that has all been completely cleared up immediately thank you i completely misread that that's hilarious yeah, because if you look at the last panel on that page, you can see that there's like a crystalline opening into the wall. That's so funny. I read that on an entirely unliteral level and not at all <laughs> the literal level. You're not wrong. You're not You're not totally wrong because I can see where you would definitely like, oh yeah, no, yeah, like, that's nice. What's going on here? <laughs> I am yeah. so ready to see these four vampires get pounded to shit by our four heroines of the story. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Days. I love that. Yes. So good. Your prey awaits. I also love the fact that they look like a generic D&D adventure party, but vampires. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, for real. So freaking beautifully drawn. Oh yeah. But again, I love it. If they were if they were 
really distinctive and you know very much their own character i think it would slightly put a put a scratch on the grindhouse you know goodness that we have going on you need those slightly generic slightly trope ridden characters in order to pull off a good grindhouse and they're doing so well i can't wait i can't wait for the next issue this is gonna be amazing i love how the plot of this book so far it seems to almost exactly be following like the the grindhouse kind of trope where you like you start off with the with the smaller threat and you just the action ramps up so now they've got like four mid-level bosses they're gonna fight and then we're gonna see them move on and on and on it's crazy i love it and i love the dedication to taking that movie format and working it in a comic format and you know both in exploiting the the tropes in both of them and and making them something grander where can we see this book going like what like i i I, you know what? I don't even want to guess because I, I don't think I could at this time. And I just expect a balls to the wall, like fun read that I will like come back to whenever I want anything just quick and fun to read because it's quick, it's fun, it's dirty. And God, it's worth every penny that I spent on. Yeah. Uh, where where can we expect the series to go? My genuine answer is who cares? Like, I, <laughs> you anywhere as long as it keeps doing this. I mean, it obviously has to escalate because we're we're threatening war with the vampire nation so i i can't wait to see just how far they push it <laughs> yeah like i honestly they can do anything in this series short of abigail brand war crimes and i'll just be like cheering along <laughs> i mean they can do <laughs> brand war, war crimes too if they really want to do that to these characters but you know I'm sure it'll just be harmless fun. Harmless to anybody who's not a vampire. Great. I don't know where this will go, but I like like what it was said before. I don't care. I am so here for this ride. Like I am I'm I, I, I stood in line. I got on the ride. The ride is so much better than I thought it was gonna be. I'm just like, it's so horny on main, and I love it. Cause they, it's one of the few times I've seen it done correctly. And I it just the art's there, the writing is there the the jokes the one-liners the quips are there like it's oh, it's such a good book i'm like and, and i i honestly i kind of needed something that had some ch- tongue-in-cheek laughter to it and this straight up does i'm so here for it you are gonna enjoy this you are going to say oh my god that's a lot of blood or you are gonna say like holy fuck i love the dialogue or or something you know something is gonna draw you in and you're gonna and at least with what i've read so far i'm like ah cool there's no cringe moments yet and I'm, I'm just lo- loving that what character so far have you gravitated toward and fallen in love with the most I, I gotta say it's good and fun as the dazzler is and I can't wait to see what goes of Laura but I'm, I'm, I'm stuck between either Boom Boom or Jubilee being like the character who stands out the most for me and I can't really decide because they both got their good points of read. I wonder how that'll change as we go on because the first issue was so very Boom Boom centric and this one had a lot of like really good Jubilee jokes I wonder if we're getting four issues, right? I wonder if each one is just going to focus on each of them. Mm. Although, you know, it shares a little bit between them. It's not like it's a perspective character or anything, but I felt like we got a lot more uh, digging into the fun side of Jubilee in this issue. Yeah, I, for, for me, Jubilee took the cake on this issue. Boom, boom, on the last one. It's going to be hard for me to say, but I love all these characters and I can't wait for Dazzler to get her time to shine or Laura to try to hold up hold up her end of that bargain. She's the complete opposite of me, but I am gravitating towards Tabby. <laughs> Ha 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 ha.
I loved the way that she broke into the story to bring us in, into the quiet council scene. And oh god, I am so there with you. Like I am enamored with with Boom Boom so fucking much. I love how hard she leans into the functional alcoholic bimbo with no shame, like zero shame. And I love that because you shouldn't be ashamed of being functional. You shouldn't be ashamed of wanting to dress like a bimbo, being sexy for yourself and just like going out and doing what you do in what makes you feel comfortable. I fucking love it and I'm here for it. And I love that she's not played as just white trash. She is played as a trope, but with still more respect for who she is as a person. And I fucking love it. And I'm so here for it. Yeah, she's got a little self-awareness in her being a trope. And I, I love how she kind of plays with those ideas. Like she's she's like, okay, cool. This is what everybody expects of me. I'm going to give it and give it like to the 20th degree. So hard to say goodbye to a, such a good issue. But as we wrap this up, like what, what are your final thoughts? I, my mind can't go anywhere else besides like if you are not picking this up, pick it up. It is so much fun. If you want something that is balls to the wall, like just excitement, humor, sexiness, ev- everything at the same time, good art, good writing, good colors, like great lettering, like go with this book. Like I, I gotta say, like just even even the lettering, the the font they use for the sensor bar is amazing. Like there's just so many good pieces to this and deceptively simple. Like just think of how much hard work it took to put together this really fun ride, but it is wow. There's there's a lot of intricate pieces. I absolutely agree. Like if if you need something that is just a fun romp, like something to clean your palate and and turns up the sexy factor just a little bit in a really really good way, this is absolutely the book that you want to pick up and that you want to support. And Marvel, if you're listening, please, please for the love of God, give Leah more title, give these people more things to do because they honestly executed it so well and i'm here for it i'm looking forward to it and i'm keeping my eyes out for the next book yeah seriously this is this is really my favorite book that's being released currently i i need more of the more of this stuff from this creative team it's absolutely fantastic so yeah i just look forward to anything more in this series if they want to do an exterminators 2 with an entirely different cast i'll read that too yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, seriously though, like, what other comics can you get? Somebody saying the line, "Why do you keep bringing up circumcision at a time like this?" <laughs> <laughs> Some of these jokes, they just they just land so perfectly. Like, I don't even think that joke should land, but it's because of the characters that are saying it, who it's been saying, and in in the conversation that it's like happening in while they're surrounded by all these doubles. It's just like the timing is perfect and each joke just hits me square in the gut for a belly laugh. 